We're going to continue studying the Psalms. Uh, we're in our summer series on the songs, uh, the Psalms of summer. And I get to share with you my second favorite Psalm uh, today, because I already shared with you my first one a few weeks ago. Um, and we're going to talk about Psalm 22. I want you to grab your Bibles and turn there. Uh, this Psalm is amazing. And it's really weird compared to other Psalms. There's a lot of strange stuff about it. And we're going to dig into God's Word this morning and, and check it out. Um, when I went to seminary, uh, I took all these homiletic classes. And that's just a fancy word for talking in front of people, right? Preaching class. And they teach you all these tools like you got to have an intro, you got to have an outro, you got to have really good transitions in between so you don't lose people, you got to have a story, you got to have humor, you got to be serious, you got to stand at the front, you got to stand at, you know. And we learned all this stuff. And so I'm trying to incorporate it this week into this sermon. And there's just so much in the scriptures that's good. So there's no stories. I'm just letting you know right now. There's nothing. We're just going to look at this psalm and we're going to dig through it because it is unbelievable. The things that, that King David wrote down that were fulfilled in Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And I hope that this morning uh, you'll be left in awe at God's word and God's plan and God's power for what he has revealed through history, in scripture, and uh, in the crucifixion. So as Christians, uh, my goal is I want your confidence in God's word to grow. Uh, I, I think a lot of you who are believers uh, believe this word. <laughs> you are here because you think it's legitimate. Um, but we always are continuing to grow in our faith. We're always continuing to grow in our knowledge of God. And so that's my hope for you this morning, that this would encourage you and inspire you and get you excited about God's word. And if you're here today and you haven't trusted in Christ, I hope that you leave today puzzled. And I hope that today you leave today thinking a lot about what's said in Scripture and the things that were fulfilled in Jesus. And I hope that it, it stays in your mind and it messes with you a little bit. Because this stuff is unlike any other claims of any other religion that's out there. Because it's true. And because it actually happened. And because our God actually exists. And I want you to know him. So as we start um, in Psalm 22, before we dig into what it says and, and specifically what we're going to look at today, I want you to note the structure of it. There's so much debate when you're reading commentaries and people who study the Psalms. You're asking, what kind of Psalm is this? You know, people, there's Psalms of lament and then there's Psalms of praise and then there's all these different ones. And when it comes to Psalm 22, nobody knows what it is. And they say, listen, there's like, there's lament in it, but then there's praise and worship and, and exaltation of God in it, and then there's prayer in it, and we don't know what kind it is. <laughs> there's also prophecy in it. There's also prophecy all the way through this. This is a really strange psalm. Look at how David structured it. Uh, in verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Uh, this is despair and anguish, right? So you imagine a downward arrow, down, <laughs> bad. And then in verse 3, it says, Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned above, uh, upon the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. So now we got an up, right? He starts with down despair. But you, Lord, have done things corporately to my people in the past. Look at verse 6. But I'm a worm and not a man, a reproach. <laughs> spiraling back down. Do you see that? Back down. Verse 9, yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust upon my mother's breast. Up, 
So he goes down in anguish, back up because of what God's done corporately for Israel. Down in anguish, back up because of what God has done for him individually. And then you get to verse 12, and he explains why he's in anguish. This is like the squeeze. This is the torment. This is why he's so upset. And he talks about how all these people are surrounding him, and they're like animals, and they're hurting him, and they're harming him, and they're torturing him. And we read all of this, and we go, when did this happen to David? And it didn't. The things he described here didn't happen to him. But he's explaining the reason for the despair. And then you get to verse 21, uh, and it says, save me from the lion's mouth. And then this is where the whole psalm just flips. From the horns of the wild oxen, you have answered me. He's, he's crying in despair, and now deliverance from God comes. And the entire rest of the psalm is about praise and adoration and glory for who God is and what he has done and what he will do. It's weird, right? Down, up, down, up. Why am I upset? Flip because of an answered prayer, and God's amazing. That's the structure of this psalm. But what we want to look at today is the prophecy that's in it. Um, King David, under the inspiration of Scripture, prophesied about things that were to come in advance. So what is the purpose of prophecy? A prophecy validates that God's message is true. If you were God and you were trying to get the attention of people, what would you do? Have you ever thought about that? He's tried a lot of things, actually. You remember he came down uh, on, on Mount Sinai and he literally speaks and people hear him and they all freak out. And they say, Moses, we can't handle this. You please go up and talk to him yourself and you just tell us what he said because this is too much for us. We're going to die. And it's those very same people who don't listen to him and go into the promised land. Remember that? So brute strength and fear wasn't enough to get people to understand, love him, and obey him. Isn't that interesting? He's tried a lot of things. Miracles are one of the ways that God gets our attention. He does something out of the ordinary that causes us to go, that's odd like a burning bush, right? Or a resurrection, things like that. One of the other things that he does is fulfills prophecy. He tells us what's going to happen thousands of years before it happens, and then it happens. And it causes us on this side of it to go, whoa, who is this guy? How did he do that? He must be true. And it, it validates the message he's given. Every other religion tries to do this, and it's a joke, it really is. If you look at other prophecies, supposed prophecies of other religions, it is nothing compared to what the Bible does. It's nothing compared to what the real God has said. But a lot of you are thinking, wait a second, David, a prophet? He wasn't a prophet. He was a king. Well, he was a king. But he also was a prophet. And it's actually Peter who tells us this in Acts 2, 29 through 31. Peter says, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. Peter is quoting Psalm 16.10 which was by David. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And what Peter's saying is, David died and his body rotted. 
and his tomb's with us today. So he couldn't have been talking about himself. He wasn't. He was looking forward to the Messiah who was to come, whose body wouldn't decay, and whose soul wouldn't be abandoned to Hades, right? David was prophesying about Christ. David, in addition to being a king, was a prophet. And we have a similar thing with our text today. Now, a lot of people try to say, yeah, David was just talking about a rough time when Saul was chasing him. And you read this and you go, it can't be about David. There's one instance that a lot of people point to and say, that must have been the time when he wrote this and what he was talking about. Look, look at what this says in 1 Samuel 36. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He was distressed because people were talking about stoning him. And you read this and you go, this type of torture and your bones being pulled out of joint and hands being pierced, and that's not people talking about stoning you, right? It's not the same thing. The account of Psalm 22 never happens to King David anywhere in Scripture. And actually, it's very um, symbolic. It's flowery language. It's poetic. It's exaggerated about how people sometimes feel when they're under great distress. But the amazing thing is, as God inspired him to write this, Jesus literally fulfills these poetic exaggerations in Psalm 22. Jesus comes and he actually does what Psalm 22 says. So today, we want to look at the prophecies fulfilled in Psalm 22. Are you ready? All right, here we go. It's not time to sleep. It's time to wake up, right? I know. I know it's early. It's all right. Mark 15, 34, one of the last things Jesus says from the cross. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the first verse of Psalm 22. Did you see that? Look back at the text. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Um, when Jesus was on the cross and he said this, I've heard a lot of people talk about the God turning his back on his son and all these things that were going on. And that might be true in an extent, except that God doesn't have a back because he's a spirit, right? But he was trying to draw people's attention to Psalm 22. Uh, they didn't have the number system of Psalms uh, in Jesus' day. They didn't have verses and chapter numbers. And so when you had to talk about a psalm, the way you'd bring everybody's attention to it is you would say the first line of the psalm. Today we're going to talk about the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And everyone would go, oh, okay, you know. We do it differently. We say, turn to Psalm 23. They didn't do that. So Jesus is up on the cross fulfilling the things of Psalm 22, and he wants to draw everyone's attention to that he's fulfilling this psalm, this prophecy. And so he says these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that point, the Jews who were around would have got it. They would have understood, whoa, that is this. That psalm is exactly what's been going on right in front of us here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Scroll down to verse 6. It says, But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. Um, as I was studying this week, I was thinking about where did Jesus say he's a worm? And he doesn't. Uh, there's nowhere in the New Testament where he refers to himself as a worm. 
But this word worm is really important uh, for us. It's very descriptive of who Jesus is and what he went through. Um, So there's two different words for worm in Hebrew. Now don't shut your minds off right now and take a nap. I know I say Hebrew and people go, ah. Listen, this is is amazing. There's two different words for worm. The common word that they use for worm is rima. Um, That's just like a regular worm or a maggot kind of thing. And then there's this word, tola'at. This word... 50% 50% of the time it's used in the Old Testament, is, we translate it worm. And 50% of the time in the Old Testament, it's translated crimson. Isn't that weird? Why? Well, here's the thing. From this specific worm, it's more of a louse or a grub, actually. It's not a worm. We kind of translate it poorly. <laughs> um, they would get red dye from this louse. From this, uh, it's called the shield louse or the, uh, the cocos elysis. Uh, still exists in, in Palestine today. Um, and what it does is it secretes a red dye, and it looks red, crimson. So um, when Moses was making uh, red stuff for the temple, they would use this bug uh, to dye it. That's what they used to dye things red at the time, or scarlet or crimson. And so um, I was studying and, and thinking about this bug, and it's really neat, crimson, worm, right? Because as Jesus hung on the cross after his scourging, he would have looked like a red worm, right? He'd completely lacerated blood all over his body. He would have been completely the color of crimson at that point. But if you dig a little bit deeper into what this bug actually does, it is fascinating how God created it to be and then how he describes the Messiah as being like this. What happens is the the female of this bug only gives birth once in her life. When it's time to give birth, she kind of gets like, you know, bigger and rounded, and I'm not kidding you with this, she attaches herself to a tree, builds a cocoon around herself, and then lays her eggs underneath her body against the tree. After a couple days, the the babies hatch, and this is kind of gross, but what they do to survive is they feed off of her body, and it it kills her, and it gives them life. Her body given for them. After three days of this, and she eventually completely dies, her body secretes the red dye, and this crimson-colored dye covers her kids, covers the babies, completely dyes them red for the rest of their life, and leaves a red splotch on the tree. The babies then leave, and after another day, uh, the the cocoon and the carcass turn bright white and kind of look like wool, but it's actually a waxy material. And still today, we use this cocoon and this bug uh, after death to uh, help regulate people's hearts medicinally. So the psalmist says, I am a crimson worm and not a man. And Jesus willingly fastened himself to a cross. Jesus' blood covers us so that we can be forgiven. His body literally given on our behalf. He calls himself the bread of life. Anyone who eats of me will never hunger. Anyone who drinks of me will never thirst again. His body given for us. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, and that's the worm, that's the worm word, Though they are like the red worm, they will be like wool. I am a worm and not a man, 
I'm a reproach. Jesus did that on our behalf. Verses 7 and 8. All who see me sneer at me, and they separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, because he delights in him. Uh, These words literally are recorded in the New Testament as happening to Jesus on the cross. Matthew 27, 39 through 44. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads. You see that? Wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him. And they were saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God, let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who'd been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm a worm, not a man. People surround me and they wag their heads at me and they say, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver you. See, prophecy. A thousand years before Jesus died on the cross, King David wrote this down. A thousand years before it happened. It's amazing. Scroll down a little bit more. Look at verses uh, 14. I am poured out like water, and all of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my, stu- my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. I love this. Um, Jesus is surrounded by people who are um, attacking him. He's surrounded by the Roman Empire. He's surrounded by the Pharisees. He's literally surrounded by two thieves on the cross. And he's being poured out like water on our behalf. It says, all of my bones are out of joint. One of the things we don't talk about very often is when someone was crucified, that their bones would be pulled out of joint. There's so much other horrific stuff that goes on. We tend to focus on that. But when you were hoisted up on the cross and slammed down into the hole, it would jar your body. And after hanging in that position for so long, your shoulders would get pulled out of socket. Some people actually recorded that um, they, 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 uh, because you're just being held there by the muscles and the skin at that point, that their, their arm length would grow significantly a few inches because their, their bones are out of joint. Jesus did that on our behalf. He says that his tongue cleaves to his jaws thirsty, right? Remember one of the things that Jesus said on the cross? John 19, 28 through 29. After this, Jesus knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill what scripture said. See that? It's fulfilling prophecy. He said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine, which is vinegar, was standing there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and they brought it to his mouth. Jesus is fulfilling what Psalm 22 says, as well as what Psalm 69, 21 says. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. He's fulfilling prophecy by asking for vinegar to drink. If you notice, too, if we go back, there we go. They put the vinegar, the sour wine, on a hyssop branch. Do you see that? Hyssop was the same exact plant that Moses was instructed 
to use to apply the blood to the doors of the Israelites in Egypt. And now they're taking the wine and they're applying it to the Savior, to the Lamb of God. Just like that. It's unbelievable. Who can make this stuff up? Do you know what I mean? Who, this seems very intentional to me when I read this, and it seems very specific. This isn't like Nostradamus predicting things. Sometime in the distant future, there'll be two large things, and then a big thing will come, and there will be smoke. I don't know what that means. Like, that can mean a lot of things. Exactly. But our God knows the future, and he's specific about it. Not vague. Not vague. Specific about it. Jesus is thirsty, and he fulfills prophecy. Look at verse 16. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. See that? They pierced my hands and my feet. Well, we know that Jesus' hands and feet were pierced. John 20, 25. The disciples were talking to Thomas, and they were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprints of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Jesus' hands and feet were pierced on the cross. He was nailed, he was fastened to the cross. What is interesting about this is when David wrote this down, crucifixion wasn't a form of execution. The, the majority of the, the, the old, when we go back in time, we really hear about crucifixion happening during the, the Mede and Persian Empire. So about 600, 500 BC is when it's very prominent. Some people argue, no, the Babylonians and Assyrians might have done it too. Okay, that's great. We can, we can say, well, grant it. Still, David prophesied this a few hundred years before the Babylonians started maybe doing crucifixion. What did, I, I want to ask David when I get to heaven, what do you think this meant <laughs> when you wrote it down, right? And maybe he'll say, God showed me what was going to happen, and I knew it exactly. Or maybe he'll say, I don't know, like the Lord just inspired me to write it and he does what he wants with us, right? I don't know. But crucifixion wasn't even around when he wrote this. Amazing. And Jesus' hands and feet were pierced for us. Verse 17. I can count all of my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Look at how this is depicted in John. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and they made four parts, a part for every soldier. This is important. Uh, typically, a crucifixion garrison consisted of four people. And if you think about crucifying someone, you need about four people to accomplish the job, to hold the guy down, to nail, to hoist. They took four people. So you see, they split his garments into four parts. The problem is that Jewish men wore five articles of clothing in the first century. And some of them, you know, shoes aren't as, as great as your cloak and things like that. And so they probably split the clothes up according to seniority and each one got something they'd want. Uh, one of the things that they would do is, um, this was kind of like a fringe benefit, it's like a perk of the job of crucifying people, is you could take their clothing and clothing was somewhat expensive. Or you could take their clothing and you could extort their family to buy it back from you. That was also legal for the Roman soldiers to do. So they made a, might have been taking it, seeing Jesus' mom is there, and saying, hey, she might spend a ton of money for this, uh, for her son's clothing. That smell like her son kind of thing. They split it into four parts, a part for every soldier, and also the tunic. You see that? It depicts this. This is the fifth article. This is different. 
The tunic was seamless and woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let's not tear it. Why? Well, because there's four of them, and they've each got a piece of his clothing, you know, a different article. And then they come to this expensive undergarment, and they say, we're not just going to slice it up and make rags out of it. How should we deal with the tunic? They cast lots for it to decide who it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. And then what does John quote? Psalm 22. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Look at Psalm 22 again. This is interesting. Verse 18. Why does it say they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots? It's like depicting two different things. You see that? He doesn't say just like they divided up all my clothes. He's specific. And that's exactly what happened. They divided up some of his clothes, and then there was one piece of his clothing that they cast lots for. The most expensive piece, the important piece, the piece that Mary would have made for him, woven in one single piece that Jesus would have worn since he left the house for three and a half years as he did ministry. Literally so specific, right? So specifically fulfills what this says in Psalm 22. I think it's amazing how God prophesied about the things that would happen for Jesus a thousand years prior to it happening and that we have the privilege of looking back on history and seeing what God was doing. It's such an important thing that we have this. It's such an important encouragement to us that we know what God was doing. Even if we go further back to Genesis, we can see some things. In verse 17, when Jesus says, I can count all of my bones, they stare at me. Um, the reason he can count all of his bones is because they've taken his clothes and he's completely naked on the cross. We sanitize it in art by putting a loincloth on him. He didn't have a loincloth on. The, the point of the cross was humiliation and torture. And so they'd hang him up there completely naked. That's why he can count all of his bones. And people stare at him. They look at him. They, they, they're sneering at him. It's an embarrassment factor. And you go back to Genesis 3, and Adam and Eve realized they were naked, and they were really ashamed. And they felt guilt. And they tried to cover themselves up with fig leaves, which is a terrible idea for clothing. And God had to come along and provide an adequate clothing. Jesus comes along, and he takes our nakedness upon himself, and our shame upon himself, and he nails it to the cross so that his blood can cover us, and his body can become our life. And he takes our shame and nakedness upon himself while literally providing clothing for the Roman soldiers who sneer at him. Isn't that the heart of God? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, covered us. The Bible is amazing. The Bible is amazing. Now this psalm goes on and it turns on a dime, like I said, in, in verse 21, where it says, you've answered me. And then you have this flowery language of praise unto God. I want you to go down to verse 27, though. It says, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before him. Hasn't this kind of happened? Hasn't the gospel gone out to the world? Aren't you part of that? <laughs> Aren't you fulfillment of that? As the families of the earth worshiped God. It's really weird how this praise turns to God's going to redeem the nations of the world. He's going to redeem all. Look at verse 30. 
Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. That he's performed it. A people who will be born. That's you, isn't it? This is 3,000 years ago when he wrote this. You were these people. And you've had this word proclaimed to you, what God has done. Because he has performed it, or he has done it. He has finished it. When Jesus hangs on the cross, one of the last things he said is what? It is finished. To Telestai. John 19.30. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. This is synonymous with the last word in Hebrew of Psalm 22.31. He has done it. He declared, it is finished. I have done it. I finished it. I performed it. Many people speculate that he might have quoted the whole psalm when he was on the cross because we have a recorded that he quotes the first verse and he quotes the last verse. I don't know if he did. Who knows, right? But he definitely drew attention to it and he definitely wanted to know, people to know that he has performed it. And based on what he did on the cross, coming generations will hear of the righteousness of God. And it'll go out to all the nations. And every family on earth will hear of the wonders of God and what he has done to save, him, save us. And you are a fulfillment of that. You're a fulfillment of this. I look at this and skeptical friends of mine say, oh, that's just coincidence. And I go, are you nuts? How can this just be coincidence? Some people will say, well, maybe it was revision, you know, and, and after the things that happened to Jesus, they changed Psalm 22. No, they didn't. We know that. We have, we have manuscripts older than Jesus' life of Psalm 22. And it says this. No. This was prophesied a thousand years before, and it's because God is real, and it's because God wants us to know who he is, and it's because God wants us to know which God he is, and it's because God wants us to know what his message is, and God wants us to know who his messenger is. He did this for our benefit, to draw our attention to the greatest news any of us can ever know or ever hear in our entire life. It is finished. What King David was describing symbolically and metaphorically, Jesus came and fulfilled it literally. Literally. So what? So what should this do for us? Well, as Christians, I think this means for us that God has a plan. And God knows the plan. And he's not just reacting to what we do. He understands the, the purpose of history and the trajectory of history. He knows where it's going and he knows what's going to happen. And where we sit right now, we have prophecies about the future that haven't been fulfilled yet. And this kind of stuff in Psalm 22 gives me confidence that I can trust God now for what he's going to fulfill later. If he could do this and I can see that, I have confidence in trusting this God for the future and the fulfillment that he's going to bring to the things in Revelation and the things in Daniel and the things in Isaiah and the things in Ezekiel. If he can do this, he can do that. And one day in eternity, we're going to have the privilege of looking back on history again from that vantage point and see how he did it, how he performed it, how he fulfilled the things that now we go, I don't know what that means sometimes. I read Revelation, I go, I don't know. <laughs> it could mean a lot. But one day we'll know because God will do what he said he's going to do. It means Jesus loves us immensely. 
And he willingly suffered these horrific things so that we could be given eternal life. It didn't happen to him. He intended it to happen. He came so that it could happen. He knew what was going to happen. And he willingly died to cover us, just like that mom bug, to gather us under himself and to give his life in place of us so that we can live and we can be covered by the blood and we can be forgiven our sins. It means that God wants us to know that he's legitimate. He told us what he was going to do and then he did it so we can see and trust in who he is. This should leave us in awe of our great God who doesn't just do miracles. And I know that sounds weird, just do miracles. Miracles are great, right? But he doesn't just do miracles. He foretells us of the miracles he's going to do before he does them. What a, why? Because he loves us and he wants us to know that he's real and he wants us to understand who he is and the power and the insight and the omniscience that he has. This should leave us in awe of our great God. Now, if you're not a Christian, I hope that this messes with you a little bit. Really, because that's what it's intended to do. It's intended to make us pay attention and go, how could this be? How is this possible? There's so many other religions in the world, and so many other of them, uh, they claim prophecy, and there's no evidence for it, and it's really vague, and if you squint and you look at it sideways, maybe you could kind of see what they're talking about. But it's, it's nothing compared with what the Bible does. And these people that come along as religious leaders and make these grandiose claims, I often ask myself, what have they done to make me trust them? What did Joseph Smith do that, that was that miraculous? Nothing. He wrote a book. You know how many people have written books? And they're not God. And they're not God's messenger. What did Muhammad do that was that miraculous? Nothing. He was all by himself in a cave and he said an angel came to him. No one can verify it. And he wrote a book. Who cares? A lot of people have done those types. I've been in caves. Have you been in caves? You have to ask yourself, what qualifies this person to speak truth when it comes to the most important questions of life? And if you're here today and, and you haven't trusted in Jesus, you might be trusting one of these false religions. Ask yourself that. Why do I think these are legitimate? Or you might not think any of them are legitimate, and that means you're just trusting in yourself. And I'd like to ask you, what have you done? Who are you? Really? If I ask myself that, I, I'm not trustworthy. I haven't done anything that grand. I don't know what the entire universe is like. I've never been outside of this atmosphere, to be honest with you. It makes sense to trust a guy who's validated his message over and over and over again through miracles and through prophecy, who also has an outside perspective on our situation. It's the most logical of faith there is. And if you haven't trusted in what Jesus did for you on the cross, you need to. You need to stop trusting in yourself. You need to stop trusting in false gods. You need to trust in a God who's validated the message by sending his son and doing the things he prophesied thousands of years before that he would do. He's done it because he cares about us. He's done it because he loves us. He's done it to show us how great he is. And as Christians, we need to be in awe of that and encouraged, encouraged by this word. Psalm 22 always encourages my heart trust God more, to make it through. When I suffer things not even close to what's described, I can trust that he'll answer my prayer. He has answered my prayer by sending his son. And if you're not a Christian, you need to trust in Jesus. He wants you to have faith in him, believe in him for everlasting life. It's the most important decision you'll ever make, and I'd encourage you to do that.